Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. We are uh, in week two of our Summer of Impact series. Last week, William shared with us about a young king who brought renewal and revival to the people of God in Israel. And this week, we're going to look at a priest who saved a nation. I want you to join me in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, if you know the books of the Bible, you know it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers 16 is in the part of the Bible that if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you've probably gotten a little bogged down there, and that's okay. Hopefully you push through. But number 16 is going to reveal a story that I think is going to be important for us to understand and apply in our context. As you go there, Numbers chapter 16, uh, let me give you some context for what's going on. This is uh, the wilderness days of the people of Israel. They've been led out of captivity in Egypt almost 400 years. Uh, they've not yet arrived in the promised land. So they're somewhere in between their captivity and the, the promised land. And in this place, they're starting to grow restless, irritated, and hostile, especially toward those who are leading them on this journey. And in the chapter we're going to look at, what begins as a confrontation is going to turn into an all-out catastrophe. And the heroes of our story, heroes of our story, are going to have to navigate leading through chaos, leadership through crisis. And so um, I, as I was preparing this message, I thought this is really a leadership talk. And I was kind of picturing myself on a stage doing a TED talk. But I'm like, but that's not, that's not our context. We're a church. I'm a pastor. And the reality is if, if I was to say, hey, I want to give you some principles on leadership, that's good. And there's a place for that. But my fear is that many of you would just tune me out and go, well, I'm not a leader, right? And my life's not in chaos, I'm not in crisis, so this isn't going to apply to me. So, so let me back it up and talk about it this way. Even if you don't consider yourself a leader, even if you feel like your presence isn't a matter of life and death, here's what I want you to see in the story we're going to look at together. First, this is a story at its base about how people of God live through difficult circumstances. Anybody had some difficult circumstances in the last year and a half? <laughs> When we look at the people of God in the Old Testament, we're going to be reading the narratives of mostly Israelite people and those who have basically adopted the culture and the customs of Israel, a nation. When we look at the people of God in the New Testament, that's going to be those who have put faith in Jesus for salvation. That's us. And so even though this is a different place, a couple thousand years ago, different people that spoke a different language, they're going to represent for us the people of God and allow us to learn from them. In fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, talking about these very people, he says, I don't want you, Christians, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. By the way, don't think I cloud. This is a different kind of thing. But I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. Oh, I just read that. Go to the next one. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And here's the key. Now, these things took place as examples for us 
that we might not desire evil as they did. So you go, a couple thousand years ago, other people, other place, other language, what in the world does it have to do with me? And the writer of 1 Corinthians is going to say, it's got a lot to do with you because as the people of God, you've got some lessons you can learn here. And so that's what we're going to do today. Secondly, uh, the, the story we're looking at today is a story about physical death. We're, we're going to see that in the passage, that there is a large uh, outbreak of people dying. And you might go, well, I mean, we've lived through a pandemic now, but, but maybe in your life you're like, man, I'm not like surrounded by people who are dying, but you are surrounded by people who are living in spiritual death. In fact, increasingly in our culture, it is a culture of death and not life. And so with that kind of context, I want to give us three principles that are at work, not only among leaders, but among people of God. Here's the first one. First principle. As the people of God, we have been chosen. We've been chosen. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, son of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. These assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Verse 4, When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and to all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, God will bring near to him. Three key players in this story that I want to get you acquainted with. One or two of them you probably already are. The first is Moses. Moses of Prince of Egypt fame for some of us in my generation and younger. Or Ten Commandments Charlton Heston fame for those who are a little older than that. The guy who led the people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. That, that Moses is one of the key characters here. And secondly is his brother Aaron. Now, where Moses' ministry is one of a, of a prophetic role, he's speaking to the people on behalf of God. Aaron's going to come alongside him in a priestly role, speaking to God on behalf of the people. And this one-two punch is the God-ordained, God-anointed leaders of the people of Israel. But the third character is probably not as well known to you because he only shows up in this passage, at least his story, and there's one negative reference to him in the book of Jude in the New Testament. His name is Korah, K-O-R-A-H. What we know about Korah is that he's a member of the Israelite community, and he's also a, of the tribe of Levi. Okay, Now you're going, does this matter? Yes, it does, and I'm going to explain why. If, if we look in the Old Testament, you remember Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons, Many sons had Father Abraham, right? So one of those uh, sons, if you will, was his grandson, Jacob. Jacob also had many sons, and one of those sons was a man named Levi. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons. Jacob's name would be changed to Israel, which means he wrestles or he struggles. And Israel will have 12 sons, which will become known as the 12, what? The 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons is a man named Levi, the third of the 12 brothers. And Levi's descendants would become known as Levites. Their job would be to serve God in the temple in a priestly role. Okay. Now here's why all of this matters. 
Moses, his brother Aaron, and Korah are all Levites. They're, they're equals, they're, they're brothers. In fact, in a literal sense, Moses and Aaron are brothers, and Korah is actually not only a fellow Levite, he's their first cousin. Okay? So this is a family affair. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one, but have you ever had family drama? <laughs> We're going to see some family drama go down in Numbers chapter 16. In fact, the language of the text shows us this incredible intensity with which Korah comes at his cousins, Moses and Aaron. Verse 1 tells us he took men, which doesn't sound very uh, uh, bad, but you need to understand that if you were to look at this in Hebrew, the first word is took. So, so if you were to read this in Hebrew, it would, it would say took Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, and he would go through all of these names and you go, well, that doesn't make sense in English, right? But in Hebrew, it's making a point. The point is that verb, that action of taking is the heart of the story. It's the point with which Korah comes against Moses and Aaron. This is not simply a confrontation. Korah is trying to take over. He's trying to usurp the leadership that is rightfully Moses and Aaron. So it begins with took, and then the English supplies the word men, but it's not in the Hebrew. So the point of the Hebrew is not that, that Korah took men. The point is that he took. Does that make sense? And, and as we go on, verse 2, it says that he rose up. It says that the, the people assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. This is a red-hot situation. This idea of together against, I've talked about this in the past. This is the kind of unity that our culture is trying to conform us to. Together, we're supposed to be, you know, lock arms and, you know, we are the world and we're all one. And, but it's unfortunately a together against the plans and the purposes of God. It's what Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, David talks about this. I know it. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, it's possible to be united together against the will and the ways of God. This is what's happening with Korah and company. And they say this in verse three, they say to Moses and Aaron, you've gone too far. Now, typically when we use the expression, you've gone too far, it's like when we're in an argument with a spouse and they really go there. Like, oh, you're going to talk about my mom? Like, no, that doesn't happen. But I'm just saying like, I'm just saying like, you've gone too far. Like, whoa, 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 something happened here. So here's what I did. I did what you would have done. I, I went to chapter 15 and read, and I'm like, I don't see him going too far. Went back to 14. I'm like, I don't see him going too far. What did Moses and Aaron do to invite this criticism? You've gone too far. Again, the Hebrew is going to be helpful for us here. Because in Hebrew, it's not you've gone too far. In Hebrew, it's you have too much. You see the difference? Korah is not saying, Moses and Aaron, you've, you've crossed a line, a boundary. You have gone too far. They're saying you have too much authority. You have too much power. You have too much decision rights over the people. And Korah is saying, look, I'm a Levite just like you are. And every one of these people is holy and chosen by God just like you are. It sounds good until we understand that what Korah is doing is setting himself up to become the people's priest, right? He's like, hey guys, I'm going to be like for you. 
We're, we're going to manage this thing like equals. This is going to be the first democracy right here. And Moses and Aaron are having none of it. Moses' immediate response is to fall on his face. In scripture, this is always the posture of humility, reverence, and worship. In fact, one of the Old Testament or Hebrew words for worship is to fall on your face. This is what Moses does. And I love this because there's a leadership lesson for us or just a life lesson. Moses does not respond to the criticism and the confrontation by going against the people that came at him. He responds to it by going to God. He goes to God in humility and in worship. Great leaders ranging from Moses, Nehemiah, David, Jesus, all of these people model this for us. When, when someone comes against them, their natural uh, position and posture is to turn to the Lord. God, this is your fight, not mine. Moses falls on his face. I would have been tempted to put Korah on, on his face, but Moses takes a different route. He says, Lord, I'm going to let you deal with these now, notice something about the people that come with Korah. The, the text is very clear about who these people are. These aren't nobodies. This isn't the riffraff of Israel. It uses the word chiefs, chosen from the assembly, and well-known. Korah had a whole, a whole campaign going on here. He had the right people in his corner, but notice that the people were chosen, uh, in fact, or, or these chiefs were chosen by the assembly. Moses and Aaron were chosen by God. And because Moses and Aaron were confident in the fact that God had chosen them, they were not scared off. They weren't intimidated by the criticism of their enemies. Now, remember, these things are written as examples to us. So what is the point? Here's what I believe the point is. As Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, you also have been chosen, not by people, but by God. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Wait for it. I should have memorized. I have this memorized and I can't. He says, you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, his special possession, something like that, um, calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here's the point. Look at the words in yellow. You're chosen, you're God's possession. Okay, so, so in other words, you don't need to like go into every day going, man, do I have enough resources to be valuable today? Do I have enough approval to matter today? You are chosen by God. You are his special possession. Like Moses and Aaron, our confidence should not be built on what we have done or what we possess, but on the fact that God has chosen us and we are his special possession. Just like we sang earlier in this service, I'm so glad that my freedom isn't based on what I've done, but on the goodness and Mercy and the power of the blood. That is where our hope is. We have been chosen by one who gave his own son to die for us. Number two. Number two, we have been set apart. We have been set apart. Now, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to verse 41 in number 16. So I want to give you the in-between. Basically, what happens is picture like a heavyweight bout. Like in this corner, we have, you know, and so it's Korah and these 250 guys and in this corner, you got Moses and Aaron. And Moses basically says, look, if you guys want to face off, you can do that, but it's not going to go well for you. Next morning, they all come together. They meet at the front of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was basically uh, the place where God's presence would come. And sure enough, the glory of the Lord falls and the earth opens up and all the people that oppose Moses and Aaron are swallowed up into it and die. 
God bless you. Have a good week. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but that's what's, what's going on. Like 14,700 people are going to die at the, by the end of this passage. So, th- so this is like, we're going to get into this, right? But it starts with these leaders of the people who are opposing Moses and Aaron, trying to usurp their leadership, and the earth just swallows up. And so what happens is the very next day, the people don't go, whew, man, we need to make sure not to oppose God anymore. We, we need to tread lightly. No, here's what happens. Look at verse 41. The very next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. By the way, that's obviously not true, right? They, they didn't do it. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting and behold, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord appeared and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, get away from the midst of this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. Now I need to speak to something that's kind of the elephant in the passage. And and I don't want to gloss over it too quickly. Judgment especially the judgment of God, is not something that gets talked a lot about today. Even in churches, right? Um, Where in maybe previous generations, I want to unpack this a little more in a moment, but let me at least start by saying this. Whereas in previous generations, people's default position seemed to be God is a God of judgment and wrath and there's nothing I could do. And we go, hey, good news, there's grace, there's salvation, Problem is, we started talking so little about the other side that now I'm encountering people who think that God's job is to save them. Well, let's just live however I want, right? Like, there's Jesus. <laughs> and so when we talk about judgment, we, we, we can't skirt around it. In fact, reading the Old Testament and in, in, even into the New Testament, it just keeps coming back again and again, this idea of divine judgment. And believe me, on every personality scale, I'm like the the peacemaker, the, the, the laid back, like all's good. Like if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be a Buddhist. Like I'm that person. If, if judgment was not here, I would tell you. And I would happily tell you. But the judgment of God is a real thing. Let me give you just some quick hits because we can't really spend the whole rest of the message on it. So four things real quick. Number one, God is the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's not like, well, God used to be like, Whatever God was like, he is like. And whatever he is like, he was like. And Jesus is the ultimate expression, the exact representation of the image of God, right? So God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the God who's in the Old Testament doing these kind of things is the God that we worship, number one. Number two, God's hatred of sin hasn't changed and all sin will be judged by God. And this is important because it's good that God judges sin. Like, like you don't want a God who just goes, hey, I know that person took advantage of you. I know that person abused you, hurt you, abandoned you, betrayed you, but you know what? It's all good. I'm just going to kind of give him the grandfatherly pat on the head. Like that's not God. God judges sin. He must judge sin. Number three, divine judgment is both a thing of the past and also a thing of the future. Anybody read Revelation recently, <laughs> Right? Like judgment is a thing of the past and thing of the future. Let me talk more about that in a second. And very, very importantly, and, and I actually feel the need to say this now more than I did even a couple years ago, judgment is a prerogative of God alone. 
Okay, this is, this is kind of a watershed place. It's not that we don't believe in God's judgment. We do. We just don't believe God has called us to be the executors of his judgment. Right? Like there's some religions that are like, hey, God's going to judge and I'm going to bring the sword to bear on it. But in the New Testament, it's very, very clear. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put away your sword because everyone who lives by the sword will die by the sword. He said, turn the other cheek. He said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two. In other words, don't take the matter into your own hands. Judgment is God's prerogative. Our job is to proclaim the truth in love. Now, having said all of that with that kind of caveat, let me say this. The Old Testament prophetic language and the book of Revelation and various New Testament passages make clear that a day of God's judgment is coming. Let me give you just one example in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. We didn't do this in the first service, Zach, so there, there we go. This is the New Testament. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's, that's a future tense. Like that's something that's coming. God's judgment is coming. You're like, wait, wait, wait. But I thought there was Jesus. Yes, there is Jesus. So let me get there. How did Jesus change the game? Here's how Jesus changed it. When Jesus was in the garden and he, he fell to his knees and prayed to the father, he said, father, if there's any other way, let this cup be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Do you remember this? Well, many people believe, and Austin and I were actually talking about this in between services, many people believe that what Jesus is referring to is the cup of the judgment of God. And Jesus is saying, Father, if there's a way for me not to have to consume this, then I will take that option. Yet not my will, but yours be done. When Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus bears the sin of people so that we don't have to pay for our own sins. In other words, Jesus drank the cup fully and hands it to us and there's nothing left. Now here's the problem. Some people reject the cup. Some people, no, no, I don't want to go that way. I don't want to do that. I want to go my, and for them, Paul is going to tell us and many others, they're storing up wrath. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will say, if you think it was bad for people to disobey the law in the Old Testament, just think how bad it will be for those who trample the blood of Jesus underfoot and treat as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that saved them. There is a thing called the judgment or the wrath of God, and it is coming, but we have a way of escape. That is the gospel. That is the good news, that Jesus saves us from our sins. Go back to Numbers chapter 16, 45. God says to Moses and Aaron, get away from the midst of the congregation. Why? Because he's about to judge. He doesn't want them to be consumed in the judgment. Now, this is where I think it's important that we talk about these things because unfortunately, sometimes the way we talk about salvation, it's like, hey, who wants to sign up for heaven? And that's not the way the Bible talks about salvation. And it's not the way Jesus talked about salvation. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And repentance is simply going one direction and going, this way leads to God's judgment. This way leads to eternal death. I'm going to turn and go a different direction. But that has to take place. Our default position is not life, it's death. And that's why we must turn and move and come out and be separate from the sins of the world. One of the words that scripture uses to talk about the process of repentance and growth in faith is the word sanctification. And it just means to separate. This is what God is telling Moses and Aaron to do. 
He's saying, guys, separate yourselves because the judgment of God is going to fall here and I don't want you to experience that judgment. Let me ask these two questions. Number one, how different is your life from those who have not turned to Jesus? And more on point, how different is your life than from before you turned to Jesus? If my personal experience and observation holds any water, I would say that it Many of us, maybe when we first came to Jesus, if we have done that, man, immediately was like, yeah, my life is totally different. I mean, the way I spend my time, my money, the way I think about people and relate with them, my attitude, like I'm a totally different person. But what happens over time is we drift, right? We drift back into the very sins that Paul says are the reason that God's judgment is coming on the world. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, you're being set apart from the world. That is God's will for you. Now, I alluded to this, but let me go a little deeper into it. I think in previous generations, this concept was pretty clearly understood. (laughs) In fact, maybe a little too well understood. Like set apart in previous generations sometimes meant you can't go to movie theaters, and you can't go to uh, pools, and you can't go to, you know, this place or that or play cards or whatever it is. And there was this prohibitive approach to faith where it was all about judgment and wrath and disobedience and obedience, and they missed it because they were focusing on the wrong thing, right? Their idea of being set apart was something that I do that makes me look better than other people. And I'm using generalizations. I know that's not true of everyone, but that was a lot of, a lot of you grew up in churches like this, right? Like, you know, checking the length of the skirt or whatever. I mean, like, it's crazy. I don't want to go back there. I don't. I don't think that's what sanctification means. I don't think that is the will of God. But here is my concern for the present generations. One generation said to us in youth group, it's not about rules. And we heard, there are no rules. And that's simply not true. And the generation that said there are no rules is raising a generation that's saying, we're going to now rewrite the rules. And we're going to give you a new rule book. And see, we've slipped on this idea that we are a people set apart. We, we should spend our time differently, spend our resources differently, interact with people differently, use social media differently, run businesses differently. We are sanctified. We are set apart. This is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. The great danger is that today... People can go to church, listen to worship music, get a Bible verse tattoo, and post motivational quotes on social media, and yet know nothing of repentance and nothing of sanctification. And without turning from our sin, without receiving the gift of salvation in Jesus, there is no salvation. Third and final principle for us today. We have been sent. We have been sent. This is where, to me, the story really gets good. I want to read number 16, verses 46 to 48. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly and behold, the plague had already begun among the people and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And Aaron stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now I want you to imagine this scene if you can kind of tap into the creative part of your mind. Imagine people just literally falling like dominoes 
Moses and Aaron have separated themselves. They've stood back and away from. But rather than just standing back and saying, whew, good thing we missed out on that. Moses does something very interesting. He says, Aaron, take fire from the altar and go straight into the place where God's judgment is falling. You go, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Didn't God tell them to be set apart? Yes, sanctify yourselves. But once you've set yourself apart, once you've followed the way of Jesus, you've put your trust in him, you're learning to live differently and speak differently and think differently, then I want you to go right back into the midst. Bring the message of life to the very places where there is death. I believe the great need of our day is for people who will stand between. People who can integrate our dual identity as a sanctified child of God and a sent ambassador of Christ. We must be both. Moses and Aaron could not have in any way helped the people if they were standing among them, rebelling against God and falling dead in the plague. But they also wouldn't have saved the people if they had stood back and just said, they made their choices. See, one of the things that's happening as, as culture wars get hotter and hotter is that the church is too often taking the position of, well, hey, they are choosing it. They're going the way they want to go rather than running into the midst with the life-giving message of the gospel so that even if one or even if two or three, that we would stand between the living and the dead and where we would stand, death would stop. I believe there's people in this room who God is going to call to stand in places and see death be stopped. And that could be your workplace. Maybe you're in business and you see the death of brought about by greed and an obsession with wealth and oppression of people. You can, you know, I'm going to stand in my place of business as a manager, a supervisor, a, a CEO. And where I stand, death is going to stop. Or maybe God's called you to entertainment. You have gifts for music or, or uh, theater or acting, whatever it might be. You say, man, there's so much godlessness in that industry, but I'm going into that not to make a name for myself. I'm going in so that where I stand, death stops. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your neighborhood. You're not there by accident. You've been sent to be the next door neighbor, the person across the street, so that where you stand, where you live, that death stops, spiritual death, eternal death through the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus did. And this is what I love about the passage most of all. Aaron, the high priest in the Old Testament, is a picture of Jesus, our great high priest, who stood on the cross, took the sins of the world, and where Christ stood, death stopped. Some of you came this morning and you've never received the cup of God's grace and mercy. God must judge sin, but God's desire is to not judge the person. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There is a time, be it another day, another week, another year, another decade, there's a period of time where the invitation's open. He stands with open arms that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Where Christ stands, death stops. And it may be that today you would just humble yourself, maybe fall on your face like Moses did. Say, Lord, I'm done living in death. I am ready to embrace life in Christ. For others of us, the call is to go a little bit beyond that to sanctify ourselves, to separate ourselves, to be different from the way of the world, but then to go right back into the midst of the world with the life-saving message of the gospel. Where has God called you to stand in your place? And will you do that this week? 
Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.